So if you go to any Christian church, it, you're going to hear someone use the word saved. Or is that person saved or she saved? And oftentimes uh, people will even, and this is an interesting thing, especially with the older generation, they'll, they'll remember the day and the year that they were saved. Someone's like, well, I was saved at a Billy Graham crusade, April 4th, 1985. Like they'll have the exact day and year. And, you know, I, when I was saved, I don't remember the exact day or time, but I know I was, so that's good. But, you know, but that's people used to keep track. And I guess maybe that's not so bad, but that's what people used to do a lot of the times, especially the uh, baby boomer generation. And it's, so, it's such a common kind of Christianese term being saved uh, that there's actually a, a movie uh, that, that made fun of this, made fun of evangelical Christianity or poked at certain parts of it. And the movie was called Saved. So it's so well known that even unbelievers know the term saved. And what people don't realize is there's a lot deeper meaning to the term saved or the reality of being saved than just going to heaven when you die. So what does it mean to be saved? Well, we use it in just English language commonly. Saving someone means a person's in danger. They're under some sort of threat and they need to be rescued from that danger. So the question naturally arises, what kind of danger are we in? Why are people in trouble in the first place? Now, there's a popular idea out there that a person is saved from the devil saved from hell. And that may be true in some sense, but people take it far when they have this idea that hell is all about, you know, going to hell. And then you have Satan down there in, a, in like, you know, usually red with a pitchfork and everything. And he's tormenting people in hell. That's usually the idea that people have of being saved from that. And so Satan is the one who torments people. And we're saved from that. We're saved from that reality of Satan doing mean things to us for all eternity. And this does have some basis in church history, some, I would say. Uh, the idea that Jesus' death was a ransom to Satan. And so what happened is that, okay, you know, these people are under Satan's control and God has to pay a ransom to the devil. And so what happens is that, it will, well, God tricks Satan into this ransom deal. He's, okay, I'll kill my son or we'll have my son be killed and suffered so that we'll pay off this ransom so that these people will no longer be under your control anymore. And what God does is he tricks Satan and he's like, oh yeah, I killed my son, but guess what? I'm resurrecting him. And he's like, oh, Satan gets all fooled. And the whole plan is, is messed up on Satan's part. Now, that's just, I mean, first of all, God's sovereign and you know, he's not going to negotiate with someone wicked and evil like Satan in the first place. Uh, Satan is a finite creature uh, that is wicked and fallen. God's not going to like do bargains and try to sneak up and trick the devil. The Bible has no teaching like that whatsoever. So it, rather than this popular idea of what saved means, we need to understand more fully what we are saved from. And when we understand what we are saved from, we will understand why Jesus has had to suffer and to die for us, what he saved us from. And we'll be looking at these central questions of the Christian faith, looking at Romans 5, uh, 6 and following, starting at verse 6. For while we were still weak and at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. The Greek word for weak means spiritually and morally incapable. We're not able to be spiritually good on our own. We're not able to save ourselves on our own. We are, we are weak before God in our, in our fallen state. Romans 8 makes us clear about those who are in a fallen state. It says, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So God has to do something, cause us to be born again, because we are incapable of pleasing God on our own. And so we are 
ungodly, it says here, and ungodly means that we are sinful, so we are sinful, weak, and incapable. We need God's help. We need his grace, and that's, that's why Jesus came to die for us, to, to strengthen us, to give us grace. And it says here that Jesus came in the right time in human history, the perfect time, the best time possible for humanity. That's when Jesus came and died. This is the right time Christ died for the ungodly, the right time. Now, people have doubted whether or not it was the right time, whether or not it was a good time that Jesus died. And uh, in a very uh, interesting uh, discussion and debate at Biola University, they had Christopher Hitchens and William Lane Craig. Christopher Hitchens kind of questioned how, how absurd it was that Jesus would die at this particular time. And this is what he says. It's a very long quote, but I feel like it's worth reading it all. I won't even have it on the screen just because it's that long. But this is what he said, doubting that Jesus died at the right time. He says, I'll take uh, 100,000 years, if you like, of the, how old the earth is, if, if you like. You have to imagine that human beings are being born. Well, actually, most of them, a good number of them, aren't born. They die in childbirth or don't uh, long outlive it. They are born into a terrifying world of the unknown. Everything is a mystery to them. Everything from disease to volcanic explosions and eruptions. Everything is life expectancy from the first, I don't know, many, many tens of thousands of years would be lucky to make it to their 20s. People dying, agonizing over their teeth, poorly evolved as their teeth are, and from inheritances from their primates, other shortcomings of species, exaggerated by scarcity, by war, by famine, by competition, and so on. And for 98,000 years or so, on his projection, Heaven watches this with complete indifference. Heaven watches this, this with complete, total indifference. And then 2,000 years to go on the clock thinks, you know, actually, it's time we intervened. We can't go on like this. We don't, why don't we have someone tortured to death in Bronze Age Palestine? That should teach them. That should give them a chance of redemption. You are free to believe that, but I think the designer who thought of doing that way is very, or was very cruel, capricious, random, bludgeoning, and an incompetent one. That's extreme blasphemy towards God. He is angry at God. He thinks God did not pick the right time for Jesus to show up to redeem us. Jesus did not come at the right time. But if you just look past all of this pomp and rhetoric and everything, you will find if you reflect upon population statistics and things like that, that Jesus did in fact, and look at literature and everything, Jesus did in fact come at the right time. And this is what uh, Bill Craig, William Lane Craig said in response to Hitchens, and I thought it was very fitting, that, that really showed that in fact Jesus did come at the right time in human history. He says, well, what's really crucial here is not the time involved, Rather, it's the population of the world. The Population Reference Bureau estimates that a number of the people who have lived on this planet is about 150 billion people, or uh, sorry, 155 billion people. Only 2% of them were born prior to the advent of Christ. So that's 2%. Eric Kraps of the Survey Research Center of uh, University of Michigan Institute for Social Research says, God's timing couldn't have been more perfect. Christ showed up just before the exponential explosion of the world's population. 
So Jesus showed up right when the population exploded. The Bible says in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son. And when Christ came, the nation of Israel had been prepared. The Roman peace dominated the Mediterranean world. It was an age of literacy and learning, whereas before it hadn't been as much. The stage was set for the advent of God's son in the world. And I think in God's providential plan for human history, we see the wisdom of God orchestrating the development of human life and then bringing Christ into the world in the fullness of time. So that is definitely the case that what, what we look at, looking at the population explosion, looking at literacy, there couldn't have been a better time. Not too late, not too early, exactly the right time. It wasn't an accident. It was a part of God's perfect plan, the plan of an all-wise God. Paul tells us in the next verse that Jesus died for us while we were his enemies, while we were messed up and evil, it says verses 7 through 8. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person. No one wants to get their life up. People hold dear to their lives. Though perhaps for a good person, one would even dare to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. So he couldn't be any clearer here. Yeah, God loves you even when you're messed up. Even when you're sinful. I mean, we've, we've all had a period of unbelief. In our lives, we're all at a period of, of rebellion and sin, and God comes into our lives and saves us. And he loves us when we're sinful and mess up. And so people think, well, you know, if I'm struggling with sin right now, if, if I, I sinned a lot this week or I feel really bad, that means God doesn't love me anymore because I'm struggling with sin. That's not true. God loved you when you were his enemy, when you were, when you were against him. And he loved you then. He's going to love you now. His love is never ending. He loves us when we're at our darkest. So he loves you now. That's the important part of the gospel. And how this is accomplished is explained in more you know, specifics in Romans 5, 9 through 10. Since therefore we have been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Justified by his blood, of course, referencing the Exodus event where the blood was put on the doorways and the angel of death would pass over. That wasn't sent by Satan. That was a part of God's judgment in Exodus. And so much more shall be saved by him, saved by Jesus from the wrath of God. For while we were the enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life, by his resurrected life. Now, this, these verses contain some really hard things for people to accept, especially people in the progressive church movement. Um, it says here that Jesus saves us from the wrath of God and that we are enemies of God. It doesn't sit well with people. And that we're desperately needing reconciliation with this holy God or else we'll be under his wrath. And this is, that's what we're saved from, the wrath of God. That is what we are saved from. And this is mind-blowing, and people have really struggled with this. I've seen people struggle with this. This is what R.C. Sproul says. He says, a grand paradox or supreme irony of the Christian faith is that we are saved both by God and from God. God's the one who saves us, and we're saved from the wrath of God. And you see, people in the modern church really struggle with this biblical teaching on the wrath of God. This is what progressive theologian Tony Jones says. He says, I think in the present day, there's a lot of discomfort with the idea of God being wrathful. There's a lot of discomfort with the idea of a divinely sanctioned violence. 
He's right. I mean, there's a lot of controversy, and you see that in the song in Christ Alone. It's so interesting to me. I was like, I should tell Matt to play that song. I really should have like, no, I'm not going to. Don't do that, Nate. That is so messed up to do to a worship leader. Throw a song on him at the last second. I'm like, no, I'm just, I'm sure the songs will be perfect the way they are. I'm not going to, because I'm talking about in Christ alone. I want him to kind of play it. Nope, not going to do it. And then providentially, he does it. Look at that. Shh. Evidence of God everywhere. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, but there was a lot of controversy over this lyric till on that cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. People don't like that there's a denomination out there, the PCUSA, doesn't hold the Bible as the inerrant, infallible word of God. And this denomination uh, asked uh, Keith Getty and Towards Townsend whether or not they could change the lyrics of a song because they didn't like it. It was offensive to them. They wanted to change the lyrics to, till on the cross as Jesus got, died, the love of God was magnified. Kind of pitting against God's love and God's wrath there. And I think uh, Townsend and Getty were right to say, no, you cannot change those lyrics. You, you mustn't change them. They're very important lyrics. They're a major part of the gospel and the Christian faith. And so in response, the PCUSA, their committee, voted the entire song out of their hymnal. So they wouldn't even have that because the idea was so deeply offensive to them. And according to USA Today, an article, Presbyterians decide to drop the hymn stirs debate. This is what a member of that denomination spoke about in favor of removing the entire song in Christ alone from the PCUSA hymn book. He says, that lyric comes close to saying that God killed Jesus, that the cross is not an instrument of God's wrath. So you can see there's a lot of repulsion towards this idea. And um, this is a, a part of a larger movement to overlook the difficult parts in the Bible. The parts that you don't like, we just skip over, ignore. Let's talk about the, the fluffy parts that about rainbows makes you feel good about yourself kind of thing. Let's not go over the difficult parts. Not that there's rainbows. Well, there's rainbows in the Bible. Genesis, yeah. <laughs> don't want to be too hard on rainbows now. But we have God's word. We have to go to it. And the Bible is clear. Much more shall we be saved by him, by Jesus, from the wrath of God. It's right there. And this is not the only passage that speaks of the wrath of God. It's taught throughout the Bible. It's everywhere. In John 3, uh, 36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Not Satan with a pitchfork, the wrath of God. So the New Testament teaches, yeah, God has wrath. It's even in the Old Testament. In an amazing verse, uh, chapter that predicts the entire suffering and death of Christ and the reason why Christ had to suffer and die. Isaiah uh, 53, hundreds of years before Jesus came on the scene, predicting his, how he would suffer. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by Satan? No, by God and afflicted. And so it says later on, and I say, it's the will of the Lord to crush him. And so Jesus suffered and died so that we would never experience a vengeance and wrath of God in hell, ever. Look at Revelation, uh, that puts it in ways so clear that might make you squirm a bit. But Revelation 14, 10 through 11, it says, He also will drink of the wine of God's wrath poured in full strength into the cup of his anger. And he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. You've heard, oh, well, you know, God's completely absent from, from hell. Well, Jesus is God, it says, that 
tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. That's Jesus. He's God. And the smoke of their torment will go up forever and ever, and they have no rest day and night, these worshipers of the beast. So it isn't Satan inflicting anything in hell here. Rather, this is a wrath of a holy, just God, present in hell. He's not absent, as some have said. So we have to deal with this doctrine because the Bible is clear about this. It's hard to avoid as you pen or look through the old and the new Testament. Now, there's two points which people really struggle and we'll kind of answer these, these points uh, about Jesus satisfying the wrath of God for us in our place. The first is that God's wrath is utterly incompatible with a God of love and mercy and grace. You know, the PCUSA felt that way because they, instead of wrath of God, they said the love of God is manif uh, magnified, which it's actually both. But people have think it's incompatible with a God of love and mercy. The second is that shouldn't God be able just to forgive people without the death, without any payment or cost? And we'll look at this one because this one is, has been brought up to me by a friend I went to graduate school with. And he messaged me one day and told me he rejected the atonement because of this. But it, the nature of forgiveness on this view is that it is freely given without any cost at all. If it costs you anything, it ain't forgiveness. So the line of reasoning goes. If someone is punished to be, for, to be forgiven, if there's a cost that is paid, it isn't forgiveness at all. This is what Steve Chalk, a, a progressive theologian, says. He says, if God needs someone to pay the price for a sin, the question is, does he ever really forgive anyone at all? Assumption here is that if there is any price for forgiveness, then there isn't forgiveness as such. It costs something. And you know, this assumption is never found in the Bible. Anywhere. It's completely uh, a philosophical point, and it is a philosophical point without any foundation or reasoning, and there's actually good reason to doubt it. So think about this. Whenever you forgive someone, we are letting go of our anger over them, the canceling the offense that hurt us, that they have committed against us. When people hurt us, and we forgive them. What we are doing is we are absorbing in that sense the pain in ourselves. We're letting go. We're letting that person off the hook so that the fence will no longer be over their head, even though we have every right to be angry at them in some sense. I had one friend tell me, you know, I'm so mad at this person that if I had the choice between going to hell or forgiving this person, it's pretty close, but I think I'm going to forgive this person. That's how costly forgiveness can be to someone. For someone to say that shows you that. And I'm, you know, I'm Irish and I'm vindictive naturally. You know, that's, you know, Irish country, you know, many wars, you know, how they are. So, you know, I, it's, it costs me something to forgive someone. And, it, and it's, it's, it's difficult for us sometimes personally when they hurt us. And so we release people from ourselves, our, our self-absorbed anger and we're like, we're mad at them. It makes us feel good that we're putting that anger, we're wishing the worst on them. And, it, and it's kind of selfish and it makes us feel gratifying. Like, I'm so mad at that person, I'm going to get them for this. And then we let that go, that selfishness, because it is selfish. It ends up blessing us so much. And so what Jesus, is, is he, he absorbed the wrath of God. He absorbed it in himself. Uh, as long, and the other members of Trinity, they, God absorbed the wrath within himself. So forgiveness always costs something. It doesn't cost us nothing. Forgiveness always costs us so much. That's why it's so hard to forgive. Imagine, I, mean, I love my children. Imagine someone hurt my children. 
I mean, it'd be so hard to forgive. So difficult. Forgiveness always costs us something, but it's always worth it. But then the issue is, okay, how can a perfectly loving God have wrath? How do those two go together? How can, you know, God's love be magnified and God's wrath be on Jesus? This is like people think it's so inconsistent, but it's not. And I would say the wrath of God is not inconsistent with the love of God. It is inconsistent, though. It is inconsistent with this sort of sappy lifetime, you know, romantic lifetime from being in movies that my wife wants to watch or my, or my mom wants, wants to watch too. You know, those kind of really sappy, cheesy. It's kind of like, it's, it's inconsistent with a sappy, sentimental form of, of love. Sorry, I didn't mean to throw all romantic things under the bus like that that just came out. <laughs> but yeah, this is, this is, this is a kind of uh, love that people think that God should have. So it's kind of like God is like a sappy, Barney Simp, who always loves and never gets mad, never gets angry, always friendly, happy, harmless, you know, I love you, you love me, happy, 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 never have any anger. But if you love someone and they hurt you, it's hard not to have anger because you care so much. Now, especially if they're closer to you, like a family member, not a random stranger, it's going to hurt more when they hurt you, isn't it? She loved them so much. You see, in love and justice is, is connected. They're ingrained. If there is a judge who says he is loving, but he lets a criminal off the hook who has murdered people, stolen things, he's abused people, and he's caused so much hurt and damage, and the judge just forgives him out of his love, the sappy, sentimental love, we would say a love like that is not true love at all. What about his victims? What about the injustice of the situation? So such a, a love like that to just wink at sin and just not even care, that is profoundly unloving. It's not loving. So God's love and his justice, they're bound up in the same way you cannot artificially separate them. And so, yeah, a God who shrugs his shoulders at sin and all the horrible evils in the world and justices, oh, no big deal. They just give everybody a big, huge hug like Barney. That is not loving enough. So God's not unloving when he has wrath towards evil, towards sin, towards wickedness. But rather, he is being just. And because he's being just, he's being loving. God is the greatest good. He's the greatest being there is. He is infinitely good. That means he is not only infinitely loving, but also infinitely just. He is a standard of goodness itself. And every time we sin against him, and we do every day, we are betraying his infinite goodness, his standard of goodness. You see, he's the ultimate standard of what's right or wrong. And so every time we are sinning against this God, we are committing cosmic treason against an infinitely holy and just God, a perfect God. And if you sin against an infinitely good and just God, what type of punishment do you think we deserve? Assuming, assuming God is infinitely just here. Well, the answer is obvious. The punishment should fit the crime. If you sin against an infinite being, you deserve an infinite punishment, infinite wrath. Now, there's a big problem that you and I have is that you and I are finite. We cannot absorb an infinite amount of wrath, an infinite amount of punishment. And that is because God alone is infinite. He is the creator. We are the creature. He is infinite. We are finite. And so what had to happen is the only way we could be saved is in the person of Christ to come down, who's fully God, take on a human nature and to absorb that infinite punishment. 
Now, the idea that this supports, as some would suggest, some sort of violence or cosmic child abuse or that, you know, this is some violence done to some random third party. You know, God's like, OK, I'm going to punish this this poor soul here so that they can let these guys go. That's a misunderstanding of the biblical teaching. The biblical teaching is that it is God. He is the one that absorbs that debt in himself. The punishment and wrath you deserve, it is God who absorbs it in Christ because he loves you. He wants to be reconciled. The Father loves you. God so loved the world. He didn't hate the world. He loves the world. And so this whole child, cosmic child abuse idea misrepresents this idea of the atonement that, uh, you know, are viewing kind of the Father and Jesus as kind of these separate beings and everything. That's not the Trinity. The Trinity is there's one God, and in that one God, there are three persons, three centers of consciousness, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So it's not like three separate beings, but they're the one true God, and God in the person of Christ uh, agrees with the Father to, to absorb our debt, to absorb that infinite amount of wrath on the cross. And so after all, we can say that we're saved from God, but it is God who saves us in Christ. I mean, who else is going to save you? I mean, who's going to save you from God except, from God, except God himself? He's the most powerful being in all the universe. There's no being more powerful than God. So who is going to save you from God except God himself? And Jesus is God. And so Jesus alone can absorb that infinite death that's coming towards us. So God's justice and love are never opposed here. On that cross where Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied and the love of God was magnified for us, that he would choose to take on that infinite pain and suffering that we'll never understand, even when we're worshiping him for all eternity. And there are folks who say that this idea of this evangelical gospel is really shallow and it doesn't really provide a way for discipleship of Jesus and uh, following Christ and being transformed. And, you know, people will cite the example of, we all know it at a crusade of some sort, you know, you pray a prayer and say you believe in Jesus and everything like that. And then a person goes, lives on their life in rebellion against God, never changing, never transforming. And they're like, okay, well, you know, I, well, when I was, you know, five, I prayed the prayer. And so now I'm good to go for the rest of my life kind of thing. And there's no transformation going on there. And so people look at this, this gospel message. They say, well, that's not good. We need more, add more to that gospel to get it going. But here's my point. If you really understand the deep significance of God's love for you and how much it took for him, the infinite cost it took to forgive you, that I'm going to say that's going to transform your life. If you really understand the depths of this gospel message, it's got to, it's got to, it's going to bring out results in your life. It's going to cause amazing transformation in your life, amazing discipleship to Jesus. It's a really adequate foundation for change. And look how Paul puts it in Romans 5.11 here. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. There's rejoicing. There's joy because of this message of salvation through whom we have now received reconciliation. So the gospel brings this transformation and communion with God and this joy for rejoicing what God has done in Christ. Now, uh, we've talked about a lot of intense details about the gospel, some very hard you know, parts, but how you might say, yeah, Nate, how does this, but how does it bring transformation? How does this very, at first, very difficult message, how does this help me spiritually? Well, all relationships Everyone you'll ever have 
They thrive and they depend on forgiveness and grace. Now, as I said, I've struggled in the past being vindictive at times. Um, forgiving people has been hard, you know. Uh, but it's necessary. If you want to have a relationship with people, with your spouse, with your kids, with your family, with your church, to have good relationships, you have to understand to forgive, to release people from your anger. Because anger, because it, I mean, we're all, we're all sinners. We're going to sin against each other. We're going to hurt each other because we live in a fallen, broken world. It's impossible to have any relationship where the other person doesn't hurt you. It's impossible. You won't find anybody perfect except Jesus. He's the only one. So we have to make a decision to forgive someone when they have hurt us. And that hurt can be so deep and painful. It feels like to let them go out of your anger, to let them go just a little bit. It's, it, it's like you have to almost die to yourself on the inside. I mean, imagine my friend who said to me, I think I'd rather, you know, it's a, it's a close, you know, between either going to hell or forgiving this person in this person's mind. And I, I, I think I'll barely choose forgiveness. That's how hard it is for people to forgive. Like that a person would feel that intense rage and anger towards someone who had wronged them. And you have to let go of that offense. You're holding inside and forgive that person. And when you let go of that selfish anger, you're like, yeah, I hope they get this i hope they get that that kind of selfish indulgent anger when you let that go let go of that selfish anger and you bring it brings so much joy and trans it blesses you so much it really does and the best example i is one of my favorite movies i know they said about every movie i quote so you're like he has like the longest list of favorite movies ever but um i saw it with my wife actually when we were in california and I tried to hold back the tears as much as I could watching it, but it was really a, a great movie, A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood. And it's, this, uh, it's, it's based on a true story about how Mr. Rogers uh, led a guy to forgiving uh, his father. He was this guy named Lloyd. It's, it's how the story goes. He's, he's just so furious at his dad. Uh, for leaving his mother as she was dying and having an affair. And he's having to deal with her death and her suffering as his dad's out having an affair. And he can, he, you can see, and people that are really bitter, people that are, I've known people that are ang you know, hurt by affairs or really angry or bitter, you can just see it on their face. And I've seen people that have never forgiven people and they look like the most miserable people in the world. And this is how this guy looks. He is so angry throughout the entire movie. And he's yet, you know, he's got a great family, a beautiful wife and kid. And he's, a, he's one of the best journalists because he's such an angry, cynical person. He tries to find holes through everything. And he, you know, goes to his sister's wedding and she says, um, dad's coming to the wedding. And, he's, and the, the, the dad brings up his mother and he just starts fighting him. He gets so angry. I mean, this is ruining his life, but he is so consumed with bitterness and anger towards his father. And so he's so cynical. And so he, he's so cynical. I mean, this is how cynical the guy is. He tries to expose Mr. Rogers as a fraud. Good luck with that. You know, Mr. Rogers is pretty squeaky clean. But yeah, so Mr. Rogers actually exposes him for hiding his bitterness and lack of forgiveness for his dad. He saw the injury on his nose and he got in a fight at a wedding. And then the whole thing, he starts counseling this guy. And he counsels this guy 
to forgive his dad. And this is, you know, after a whole drama of his dad trying to beg for his forgiveness. You know, he's, he's the dad sleeping outside of his apartment in a car. He's coming to him and he, he, whenever the dad would come to him at one point, he's actually so mean to his father that he causes his father to have a heart attack and he, and his wife has to come help out. It's just so, he's so furious at his dad for this. And so he's violent and angry towards him and it's just ruining his life, his profession. And he carries this bitter weight all throughout of his life. He cannot let go of the pain he experienced by being abandoned by his father as he watched his mother dying. Now, at the end, you find out, of course, that his father is coming to him because his father is about to die in the movie. He has a heart condition that he's dying of. And he finally, through Mr. Rogers' encouragement, comes to talk to his dad and sees him on his deathbed. And it's a really incredible scene where they're telling each other how much they love each other and they forgive it and he forgives him and his life then is transformed he's a happier person he's no longer cynical and angry he lives a transformed life because of the act of forgiveness People hurt us every day. We have to let go of those things, and it's so hard. And so seeing this shows the transformation that forgiveness brings to our lives. It totally changes everything, changes every relationship, because if you don't have relationships, you don't have much, and every relationship requires forgiveness. What's the best example of forgiveness? What Jesus did for us on the cross. That is the best example. Him absorbing that infinite death, uh, debt in himself to forgive us of all of your sins ever. Every sin you have ever committed has been forgiven if you trust in Jesus Christ this morning. The worst things you have ever done, the most horrible things you have ever done, the things that you have absolutely no excuse for that were done out of pure wickedness, Christ has forgiven you. He's absorbed that penalty and debt in himself. In ways you'll never understand, because the finite can never understand the infinite, what Jesus went through for us. And the fact that God in Christ has forgiven us from an infinite debt allows us to forgive people who have committed finite sins against us. I love the way that C.S. Lewis puts it. To be a Christian means to forgive the inexcusable, because God has forgiven the inexcusable. In you. So as we look to the gospel, the worst things we have ever done have been forgiven and we are loved by Christ. Let us also treat others the same way, forgiving them for the horrible things they've done against us. And when you do that, and you look and focus, look, fix your minds to the cross and what it took to forgive your sins, then it enables you, it transforms you to forgive the sins in the relationships that matter most in your life, the people that have committed sins against you. Let us pray.